Welcome back to Violoncello Podcast, Episode 3. And this is a really important episode. The first episode, introduction. The second episode, more introduction. And now everyone's wondering, what direction will this podcast take in Episode 3? People are dying to find out. Because we didn't really broadcast what we were going to talk about. So, what are we going to talk about? Chamber music. A passion of both of ours, it's safe to say. Uh, Probably the main passion of mine. It's mostly how I engage with performance these days. Is through chamber music. Almost exclusively. And... I know you also do a lot of chamber music. Uh, yes. So I just I just went to a performance of Emerson String Quartet. And these guys are legends, needless to say. I mean, nine. I was just looking, nine Grammy Awards, which is insane for one group, uh, over many, many years. Over many years, their first their first Grammy was in '89. Their last one was like 2009 or 2010, depending on how you you know look at it. Incredible career, and anyway, it was an all Schubert program. It's their farewell tour, so I wanted to start with a little bit of legacy talk, and then we can segue into chamber music in general first of all what is it why it matters and why why we need it and how it helps us as musicians but first i i just wanted to announce and david didn't know i was going to do this but i just he just got into pacific music festival so which is (laughs) one of the most amazing so maybe in five months if, if that works out you never know the future but if that ends up working out for him, maybe we can record one live from Japan where he'll be. Uh, so that is one of the greatest, really the greatest music. Fe- it's an incredible music festival. And so he deserves some flowers. He doesn't, I mean, you don't, re- I also don't really uh, like talk myself up. So anyway, sometimes I need someone to do it for me. So I'm doing it for him. So David's been to Taos. He's been to, well, all over. He won fish off gold medal, junior division. Yeah, anyway, incredible cellist. So let's talk Emerson Quartet. What do you know of Emerson Quartet? You have seen them perform as well, right? I actually saw them uh, live in Aspen. Uh, it was one of their very few special events where there were no student tickets. And uh, so I was destroyed by that fact. And uh, I happened to be kind of outside the concert hall before the concert started. For some reason, I don't recall. And some lady came up to me and my friend and said, oh, I have one extra ticket. Does one of you want it? And um I had to be selfish for for that moment and say, I really want it. (laughs) So I took it and they played um, 
Beethoven Opus 132, the Grossa Fuga, and I believe it was Opus 130, uh, but so two late string quartet giants, and then the Opus 133 fugue, and um, it, it was uh, an unbelievable experience, and uh, I'll never forget their sparing use of vibrato in that particular concert, and I thought it was particularly effective. Um, and and uh, given their age, you might ask if it came out of laziness, but I assure you not. It was an incredible timbre that they achieved, and um, I'll never forget that. They're, they're not one of my favorite ensembles um, these days, but you have to hand it to them for their unbelievable legacy that they've created, and it's just phenomenal. Yeah, I was just... Just briefly, and then we'll get into some other stuff, but I was just wondering, so Emerson's kind of prime would be like the 80s, 90s, right, as a quartet. And I, I was just kind of in my head brainstorming, like, who are the other major players? I mean, no pun intended, but the other major, like, quartets that were going during that time like can can you think of any like was guaneri still going in the 80s oh yeah right? and guaneri and cleveland and yeah and into the night yeah and cleveland okay you have the kind of the old juilliard quartet uh i mean if that makes sense uh you have anyone else you can think of uh, not off the top of my head. I've always been a huge um, Cleveland Quartet fan myself as far as groups from that, that era. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's just, I mean, in terms of where they stack up, I would, all three of those I mentioned, I probably prefer to Emerson. Uh, but... Anyway, it's it's kind of seems like every era there's only so many that get to be great, and I I'm I'm so curious how a quartet can win nine Grammys, and it it really makes me wonder like how political some of these awards are. <laughs> uh, not not to sound cynical, but it's like you know out of like it means like every other year they're winning a grammy like their whole career and i they're not that much better than many other quartets but i just during anyway back to this performance i was like and i told david earlier i was like weeping during this performance it made such an impact to me the playing was very very poor quality but just the the whole notion of like your swan song, like your farewell as a performer. It's like, I mean, I'm still fairly young, but somehow I like fast forwarded in my mind to like really relate to what it would be like in 40 years to like be giving my last performances. It just really affected me. And it also was very affecting to me, even more than this, that these guys clearly like each other. Still, 
you know, they started in 1976 and they were still having a grand old time on stage. And so whatever else you might say about them, like that, that's kind of like all of our ideals, right? Where we find players that are really good and we like playing with them our whole career. I don't know. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, the stars really have to align and that's a once, you know, that does not happen that often. And trust me from experience. Yeah, I, I, I think, <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think when it does, you just feel lucky every day, maybe. So I think they still feel lucky, like that they were able to like do this. And also like David Finkel was there as he was their longtime cellist and he's, he stepped down from them in what, 2014, I'm, I'm guessing. I, I don't know ex roughly, but anyway, he was there for the Schubert Quintet and, and boy, that, that it was just, it, it was really nice. I mean, most of it was so out of tune, but boy, when it hit, it just, it really hit. So, okay. So like moving on to like chamber music, what is chamber music to you? Well, chamber music to me, oh, that's a tough question. It, it sounds simple, doesn't it? But the, the, I like once you questions. actually try to unpack. <laughs> um, well, well, let me just speak a little bit about what chamber music is to me and why I think it's um, particularly valuable to us musicians. Um, I think chamber music, first of all, it teaches you a lot of things that um, other aspects of music making won't teach you nearly as well. Um, it, first of all, it teaches you how to express your ideas to others. Um, and that's from a verbal standpoint or from a, a, how you uh, play too, but from a, from a speaking standpoint, you learn how to have deep dialogues. Um, if you're a proactive chamber musician, you have to be willing to be vulnerable and participate, which is not as easy as it seems. But if you have that proactivity um, to have these kind of deep dialogues about music, that's going to teach you unbelievable things about music. Um, not only by vocalizing your thoughts, which teaches you something, but also hearing what other people think teaches you a lot um, in the context of a rehearsal or, or, or not. Um, and, and I just like to sidebar here and mention arguments. Arguments are actually a wonderful thing if you know how to use them. Um, through arguing, a group can really get to, uh, I don't want to say always, but in general, the best possible solution or one of the best possible solutions. Um, and uh, I'll just put it this way. If you can't fight for your idea is it worth fighting for and so i always love having music having arguments in um, chair music settings because uh if i have one idea and a partner has another idea well i want to argue about it and see why they think their idea is a better fit and maybe i'll realize okay i i was actually um uh, a little bit incorrect here i think their idea works a little bit better for this reason or uh, maybe we'll be arguing and they'll realize that I brought up a good point about why my idea makes more sense. Or, and so these dialogues teach you about why you want certain things to go a certain way. Um, you know, so it's not just like, well, I like 
I like this to sound like this, or I think it should go like this. Well, why? If you can't say why, then why should we listen to you? And if you can't say why, then you're going to perform with all the more um, interest and, and all that stuff. Um, so it teaches you those communicative skills, speaking and playing, um, communicating ideas through your playing. Um, you also learn leadership skills. You learn how to be a good leader. Um, and to say a little bit more about that, sorry, I'm going to just say all my thoughts at once. It's so many. Um, it, it creates a personal sense of accountability to play chamber music because there's not going to be 10 cellos or 14 cellos. There's just you uh, most of the time. And so it creates that certain sense of accountability, uh, responsibility, and um, honestly, creative thinking. Uh, that you just don't get as much of in an orchestra, uh, an orchestral setting. Um, and of course you can take these skills to your orchestral playing and beyond whatever kind of music you wanna make. And, and so that's kind of my case for chamber music is you can take the skills that you learn there and apply it to orchestral playing. There's nothing better than an orchestra that communicates with each other. Not just everybody plays their part and stares at the music, but everybody's communicating. The music is so much better that way. Um, and uh, it's also more accessible uh, to, to younger people in that it's easy to dissect four voices of, of music and how they work on their own and how they work together as opposed to 30 parts in an orchestra. So I think from that way, it's great to study chamber music. Um, and then if I can also just add the benefits of chamber music on an audience, uh, from that perspective, chamber music is particularly intimate, right? It's not like going to an orchestra concert where there's 105 musicians on stage and potentially 2,500 people in an audience. Chamber music is often in a salon setting or a smaller hall. Um, and there's a certain sense of intimacy uh, and power in this type of setting, in this type of music that can really touch the listener in a profound way. Um, and from a more crude manner or aspect, uh, logistically, chamber music groups are much easier to engage with, hire, uh, collaborate with than, than a large ensemble. And that's just a great way to reach out to as many communities as possible and spread the power of music as far and wide as we can, which is our job, especially in this day and age, um, as uh, artist citizens, I like to call us. Um, so, so that's just a little Ooh, bit about yeah. chamber music as I understand it. I'm sure you have plenty of thoughts as well. Yeah. So, like going back to like unpacking a little of this, I think one of the ways or reasons it's so difficult to find a good group is this idea of mutual respect like you talked about the arguing aspect which is just going to happen right in any relationship at some point uh, but especially when you're have people that have strong conviction about music this will happen uh but the reason, like for me personally, it's so hard to find 
people to play with is you you need mutual respect and it's just very rare someone might respect someone a little more than the other like it needs to be really high for both so i have to respect everyone else i'm playing with or it's not going to work they have to respect me or it's not going to work so either of those so it's really hard for me to find people that i respect and not in the sense that i mean i i respect everyone in a sense but when you're playing in chamber music there's a cert, there's different philosophies that just simply don't really don't really gel with me for example so it's not like a respect of someone as a person but it's more like agreement with some of their philosophies about music making when i say respect maybe and obviously you have to respect them like they have to play well you have to enjoy hearing them and they have to inspire you all those if you're not inspired with who you're playing with like where you're playing and you're like oh that's so beautiful what i'm getting from these people it's so beautiful if that's not there then it's going to dry up and you're going to want to leave the group and vice versa if they're not inspired by you and your ideas and what you bring to the table it's not going to it's not going to work so i i've i've always had and like every oh yeah <laughs> Yeah, you have a thought there. Hey, this, that's a funny setting, raising your hand. I, I just, you, you got me thinking about um, some ideas and, and a, one little experience I had at Taos when we were rehearsing Brahms Viola Quintet Opus 111. Um, and at some point, the second violinist was talking, I think, to one of the violists, the second violist, maybe it was the first violinist. Uh, I just know it wasn't to me. And and this this violinist said, I just don't see a musical reason why you're doing this. And if there wasn't enough respect there, that could come off as very disrespectful. But in our setting, it was okay. And and uh, and that kind of challenged the other person to come up with a, a defense as to why they were doing something. And um, for, first of all, the respect needs to be there. And when that respect is there, these dialogues can happen and the music can can really flourish, but that'll always stick with me. I don't see a musical reason why you're doing that. And so I always ask myself that question these days. Um, so so that, that was a really interesting, not to interrupt, but I, I thought that was very interesting um, dialogue that was had and something I'll always remember. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for all you out there that perform your instruments, that is probably the number one takeaway from this episode is that you always need a musical reason for what you're doing. And like you pointed out, chamber music is the best way to dissect all these ideas. You also mentioned something else that to me is a major reason I love chamber music and that is accountability because at some even in really great professional orchestras there is accountability as well there's tons of accountability until you're kind of tenured but you know you, you can kind of skate by without 
practicing much or being super sharp. That that's just a well-known secret, a well-known secret. <laughs> and you do not always have to be on the top of your game. And there's not really anyone that's going to point you out necessarily and say, listen, by yourself, go ahead and play this page in Bartok concerto for orchestra. You go right now. No one's going to do that to you. Whereas in chamber music, every time you play, that's happening to you. And in rehearsal, people are like, can we just hear you play this? And like, you're on the spot and you better be able to play it. If not, not that respect, that respect is going to dry up that we were talking about yeah. and it's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it forces you yeah. to, to really stay sharp and on your game and, and also stay yeah, very professional, very focused. And you had something to add there. I, I was just going to add, like, not only you'd said, like, you better be ready to play it. Not only had you better be ready to play it, you better be ready to defend it and play it exactly how you intended to be. Because the way that you intended to be and the way that you play it, that doesn't just affect you. That affects um, the person playing in harmony with you. Or um, you, can, you can spin this in a million different ways, but the way you do something even if somebody doesn't have the same thing, it really affects how they're going to do what they're doing. And um, so so that just takes so much preparation in advance. It's really interesting. Well, yeah, and it feels like backstabbing in a way, like you're being betrayed. If someone like plays this way in rehearse, I mean, we talked about spontaneity. That That needs to be there. So, I mean, within reason you can play around with things you know even in performance or but occasionally if there's there's some idea that you go beyond that spontaneity like you do a different idea that just is it's not gonna work it, it can feel like you're being betrayed and being you know like wait you did it this way but maybe you were doing it this way because you know you were whatever not prepared or you know and not then you decided to do it this way so that that communication needs to always be there in chamber music uh, like if you're gonna make a big switch it's like backstage you're like you know i might do it this way and that's you know that's fine but just some 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 sort of a tip off there uh so that you're not like that that can really offend people so i mean i i've i've had that happen multiple times it's like hey we agreed to do it this way and now you're doing this so there's that trust that you cannot break i feel like no no going rogue either uh, and that's something you don't really have to deal with in orchestra that type of responsibility Oh uh, yeah, another thing you mentioned is like the accessibility. So I I find that to be very like true for me too. That chamber music is is the most accessible. Like you said it's easier, it travels easier. And I think an obvious you said intimate, but part of that like in the different halls and different settings you can play in 
part of that is that you can just physically be closer. So it's like, as a child, like they can like, you know, an orchestra needs some kind of a stage or some kind of, it needs more space to, it, you can't be close to all the players. But in chamber music, you can literally be like 10 feet from everybody. Like, boom, right there. And uh, I always appreciated, uh, even though like at University of Illinois, where I did graduate school, like this Fullinger Hall, which is a huge hall there, wonderful acoustics. But for certain chamber music concerts, they would they would only have it on stage. So they would set all the chairs up on stage. And so the hall was empty, but it was all happening on stage. So everyone was really close. I, I thought that was a great way to like reach students. When my students would go, I'd be like, yeah, you got to go. You can sit like by me, like five feet from everything going on. And they just loved it. They felt so much more involved with the performance. So basically, I just wanted to echo everything you said there about accessibility. So do you have any like, I mean, we kind of talked about this in the first episode a little bit, but about like different repertoire and that sort of thing. Uh, I know you've always loved Beethoven. I, I, Beethoven's probably my favorite, just for the record, even though I said something different, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. <laughs> but do you have any thoughts on repertoire, like the chamber music repertoire? I mean, there's just so, there's just so many. I mean, the piece I mentioned earlier is a masterpiece, especially the second movement of the Brahms Opus 111 Viola Quintet, uh, the Brahms Sextets, um, the, uh, all the Brahms piano chamber music is fabulous. The piano quartets, the piano trios, um, all the Beethoven quartets. I mean, I just find that. Um, I made it a point after my sophomore year in college to listen to all of the Beethoven quartets and the fugue. Um, and, and ever since then, I've continually listened to them to try to f keep myself familiar. And, um, there's always, no matter what I'm feeling, usually when I'm feeling very upset, there's always a particular quartet or a particular movement that I can um, resonate with and listen to and feel like, wow. Beethoven and I are, are, are pretty close here. And um, and it, that's a really special type of thing that I can't find anywhere else as a musician, that that, um, that um, strange sense of comfort when I'm very upset about something to, to listen to Beethoven's music and, um, and share in that struggle that I can tell he clearly experienced from writing those things that he wrote it's it's unbelievable um the janicek string quartets are great the tchaikovsky piano trio is fabulous um the, oh, there's mm -hmm. just so many i mean Debussy and ravel quartets um yeah yeah i think if i can just jump in like all these names you're saying are like the best composers like in history right 
So in other words, the greatest composers all wrote chamber music. And, and I think that may be like, there's great music. So even on top of just the, everything we talked about, that it's just the intimacy of it and uh, all the great composers felt the same way. And the way they can, you know, show the struggle that they're going through, through chamber music. So all, all these composers felt the same way about it back then, the great composers now they write for chamber music. And I, I think that's what makes it so like the tradition so powerful that we have from chamber music, because alongside orchestra, this was also developing, uh, not to get all music history, but for, you know, Haydn, and, and so on all the way till now, it's just developing like crazy. And all the composers were getting in on it. Like, the salon concerts and so there's nothing new there like there's always been this desire and this hunger for chamber music and uh, I, I find that really compelling and and along those lines you know if you take Beethoven for example the things he was doing in his chamber music particularly the late quartets, but even the middle period stuff, really, really everything, all, all of it, every, everything um, in general with Beethoven, the things that he was doing in those pieces of chamber music was completely unlike what he was doing in his symphonies or uh, his masses, things like these bigger works. He, he explored far more in, in the chamber music and tried much more uh, new, different, unique things. Uh, crazy things that you just will not find in the larger scale repertoire. So it was really like a science lab, if you will, an experimentation, breeding ground, whatever you want to say. Um, and that's really cool to see Beethoven and, and everybody, but Beethoven particularly, uh, experiment with new things and new ways of making music. I mean, you listen to some of those late quartets and they're, I mean, this is what he died in 1827 this is almost 200 years later there there's some weird things in there that you would say whoa that sounds pretty modern to me um but you, you listen to it and then you find it's beethoven it's it's unbelievable and you just won't find that in the larger scale music so that that's me advocating for for exploring these works so professional tips Number one, know the score. You, you have to, for like anyone, and, and we all can get, I can get lazy and be like, well, you know, I kind of know it or, or, you know, I kind of know how it goes, but, but do you really know the dynamics? Do you really know, you know, the, the five plays? you can get very detailed with, not to get too geeky but like you know why in three voices is this the dynamic and in this voice it's this dynamic like you, you need to be making those observations like you said not just playing wise but you also should have opinions not just about like you're playing but everyone's playing and ideas about how it all goes together 
and ideas about the composer and his life at that time and ideas about you know different types of you know character and emotion that goes into this and, and the reason for the you know on on and on and on so number one is this you need to know the score and by the way that goes that also goes for orchestra <laughs> but uh training training that in chamber music though is is a great place to start it because orchestra it's the scores are very bloated and and it is it's a lot more work to know the flute part the bassoon part you know i'm inspired by speaking of chamber music by like orpheus you know orchestra uh they've never had a conductor and that's super inspiring in other words they and they all study the score so every orchestra member knows the score like they all know what the flute the bassoon cello bass viola trumpet they know what everybody has and uh then they don't even need a conductor because they're such great chamber musicians uh anyway so that that's my thought you have any tips that's my tip yeah. know the score yeah i have uh i have a bunch of things i have to organize myself <laughs> classic david um what well, you said something i i already forgot but what i what i wanted to say about what you said uh uh with as far as the score um Various composers were at various levels of specificity, Beethoven and Mahler being some of the most specific, right, and and uh, and Debussy um, and, and other composers being very nonspecific. And in in any case, the score serves as the closest available key to what was going on in the composer's head at that moment in time. It's not the music; it's just a key. The music is what we interpret that that paper, those black and white notes as. And so when you look at it that way, that's a lot of work for us to do. And Beethoven makes it a little bit easier in some ways, but honestly, he makes it harder with all that specificity. But but so that's why we have discussions and we have ideas. Because, uh, Schumann. Yeah, the, the music is not the music without us. It's just black and white. It's just a key, a map we have to interpret it we have to get to the destination and and so that's a lot of work um i just wanted to add you mentioned knowing the score and knowing all these things also knowing your role within harmony um knowing this isn't applicable in every second of a piece but knowing you know what what role is my note what is it is it adding tension um is it taking us somewhere is it the root, the third, fifth, seventh, something else? Um, and, and how do you balance that? And how do you tune that? Um, I, I once had a coaching where the coach asked us, well, how do you tune, a, if you're working on a string quartet, how do you tune your part in the practice room without anybody? And I raised my hand and I said, well, uh, a drone? And this person said, very, very well-known person said, uh, that is the exact wrong answer. But, but thank you for saying that. Like we, we needed that to be said. And, and so this person went on to say that you need to tune everything with a tuner. 
and I've gotten various opinions since. Mostly, you, you can you can name you can I mean you can name drop if you want. It's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. No, I, I will tell you after this. <laughs> but but in, in any case, uh, you know, I I disagreed actually because I think that's that's a little close-minded to say that we can only tune such a thing with a tuner. Understandably, the point being made that like. If you use a drone like that only work for certain notes you have to change the drone every second like blah 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 and like you want to tune with the tuner because x y and z piano blah 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 a lot, lot of lot of uh, bullshit <laughs> but what i personally believe is is and, and what i implement is i i do a lot of um not just in generators but in everything i would say i do 75 percent with a drone and 25% with the tuner and that way you get some of both and you can understand the different methods of tuning and you know if you only tune with a tuner that might be good if you are doing a lot of your work with piano you know playing sonatas like if i have a recital coming up of sonatas yes i'll go through the entire piece with a drone check everything see what my tendencies are okay but to tuning to a tuner is tuning with your eyes Tuning to a drone is tuning with your ears, which obviously is preferable. You want to train your ears, and you train that by putting on a drone and listening to the harmony that you're creating between those two notes. A tuner, if you're not careful, is just you looking at the screen. Oh, let me adjust that. But why? I don't know. I can't hear. I'm just using my eyes. You're not going to have a tuner on stage. So I think that there's a great need for both. Um, I'll let you chime in, and then I, uh, I want to share... Uh, something I saw on Menachem Pressler's door the other day at IU, but please chime in. Uh, yeah, so pianists, if, if you're listening right now, just, just know that we really do struggle with intonation all the time. So that's your takeaway. It's very hard to play in tune for anyone that's not a piano. So... <laughs> Uh, and for the rest of us, like tuning philosophies are radically different. I, I've said this before, probably not on this podcast, so I can say it, but like the Jupiter quartet, their tuning philosophy compared to like my quartet now's tuning philosophy it is radically different. And, and you might just scratch your head and say, what do you mean? <laughs> but there's and it's hard to even explain because it's so complicated like you like you were going on explaining you know different ways to tune and just exactly what you do with a leading tone and exactly how high the third should be say if if it's an accord versus if you're a solo player how different that should be that same note and it's always shifting and and uh so i would say my quartet now it's much more variable than what i what i studied at, in graduate school like because i happen to know that quartet super well like very very well because i never missed a performance of theirs uh, so anyway that's my two cents. But what's the story about Pressler's door? Well, I, I have immense respect for Pressler. Um, 
as a as a musician he's a legend and, uh, yeah unbelievable and uh anyways i was at iu the other day for an audition not for iu for something else and uh i just decided i had to walk by presler's door it's like a musical god and uh on his door was this thing called 12 quartet commandments not written by him but he had posted it on his door and um I don't know. Should I read all twelve? Maybe, maybe not. But the first read one it. is. <laughs> you have them. <laughs> yeah, you are sharp and less proved innocent. Number two, play where your colleague is, not where he should be, had he counted as well as you. Three, <laughs> check your rhythm with a metronome. Check your rhythm with a metronome before the rehearsal rather than letting your colleagues check it for you in the rehearsal. Your metronome is a true friend. Number four, rehearsal is all about establishing guilt. Number five, <laughs> you're gonna love this one. Admit guilt straight away as it is more painful having it extracted from you. <laughs> Number six, that is never be... <laughs> Nice. Never be the first to stop when the quartet is sight reading, however wrong you are. Number seven, sleeping with a colleague's wife can prejudice purely musical discussion. What the hell? Number eight, along the lines of what you said, knowing the score is power. Number nine, be patient. It may take years, but your colleagues will catch up with your musical vision someday. That's, that's the respect thing. Uh, number 10, be confident in the next rehearsal as you alone is saved to the last concert. Number 11, a properly functioning string quartet is a compliment-free zone. Should you nevertheless receive a compliment, rest assured it is always tactical. And number 12, that's so true. That's so true. Number 12, when a colleague, this is also so true. I do, I'm guilty of this all the time. When a colleague says they're having a problem with a passage and can you play it with them, they invariably mean the problem is you. <laughs> a little sassy, but a lot, yeah. a lot of truths in there. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, the one I'll probably remember is number seven, but uh, that's, that's, I, I'm not, I'm just not sure where that came from. But uh, yeah, yeah, you should be careful about your, you know, relationships in the quartet, no doubt. Uh, so thanks for sharing those. And thank you, Mr. Pressler, for your yeah. words of wisdom. I think that's an excellent uh, point. Now I have to think. Now, now I feel like I should have something on my door. I, I never have. My rooms always. My teaching rooms never have anything, and it's it's just. I'm embarrassed now. I feel like I gotta have something. I need to find some commandments for my students. But uh, yeah, what would you have? What's the number one thing? Like if you were to have one quote on your wall, like music or not even music, just any, if you were to have one quote, you've got a, you know, your studio, you've got a nice, you know, 50th floor, you know, Manhattan, New York, you've got a beautiful flat where you teach. What's the one thing you have on the wall? 
Well, that you can only pick one. That's um, something came to my mind straight away as far as like putting it on a teaching studio, which is uh, from the Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway. And um, let me see how quick I can read this. Great book. It's a little bit of. Great um, but what would you call it? Like. Uh, I forget what you would call it, kind of like an analogy, but I'm forgetting the right word. Um, when we plant a rose seed in the earth, we notice that it is small, but we do not criticize it as rootless and stemless. We treat it as a seed, giving it the water and nourishment required of a seed. When it first shoots up out of the this earth... Is, this, is too, this, is, this is too long for a wall, but keep going. You can, you can put this on a <laughs> Please wall. Please <keep> <laughs> When it first shoots up out of the earth, we don't condemn it as immature and underdeveloped, nor do we criticize the buds for not being open when they appear. We stand in wonder at the process taking place and give the plant the care it needs at each stage of its development. The rose is a rose from the time it is a seed to the time it dies. Within it, at all times, it contains its whole potential. It seems to be constantly in the process of change, yet at each state, at each moment, it is perfectly all right the way it is. So what does that mean? We all grow at different paces. We all spurt at different times, but we're all we're all that same rose, no matter where we are. No, that's great. The reason I laugh was because you were reading it in, in a way that was like very dramatized from the way you normally speak. So I was... That's why I was laughing. I mean, it's a great quote, uh, and I agree with it. But it's, it is—it's maybe a little too flowery. No pun intended. Or pun intended. Uh, I think on my wall, I would just have. And this is honestly what's popped in my head, and I say this all the time. It—it's from a book by Joseph Zagetti who's one of the greatest musicians of the 20th century. He's a legend. He's amazing. Great violinist. Great teacher. And he wrote a book. And I forget the name of the book. But you can... Something like Art of the Violin or something like this. And on the very first page, he has a preface. And on that page, he says... There is no substitute for perfect intonation. And then he says it again at the end <laughs> of the page. There is no substitute for perfect intonation. So that's probably what I would have on my wall. But that's not really that inspiring. Uh, <laughs> so maybe, <laughs> not sure what that says about me, but... Uh, that's, but that's I would, I would, I would probably have like a pick. What I really want on my wall, and I just can't afford it. But what I, the only thing I want on my wall is like a, a true art, a great artist, to come in and paint my wall with murals. And I want a mural, and I want these great violinists just all the way around the walls. I want Heifetz to be there, you know, and Milstein. And you name it, sharing and Grumio and James Ennis. I love James Ennis. I got to admit, mad respect uh, for, you know, 
not just dead people, but just great violinists. And so that's what I would want on my wall. It's just, I'm big into this like music shrine thing, you know, like where you step into a room and it's a different world. Like it's, it's not like what you, before you open the door, you open the door and it's like Narnia or something. You go through that closet and it's like, whoa, you can't even believe where you are. It's amazing. So even though my walls are bare, you know, that's the feeling when they, when hopefully when my students step into my room. Okay, well, <laughs> boy, what's so, what's so funny? So I, I laughed at your quote and now you, 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 you laugh at mine. So we're even. That's <laughs> funny. <laughs> Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, that's excellent. I, I, yeah, that's an excellent. I, I love those <laughs> ideas. It's just funny the dichotomy between all that and then a baby blue wall behind you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know, baby blue is you know that's a very musical color. <laughs> so. Okay, so I I think uh, that that'll be a wrap. Uh, takeaways here, chamber music's really important. It's a great way to reach people. It's awesome. And you should be playing chamber music as much as you can. And it will help you with everything related to music. And that's really everything. And yeah, final thought. Keep listening to chamber music as much as you can. Absolutely. Listen, listen, listen. Listen to Emerson. Listen to Cleveland. Eben Quartet, Eben. <laughs> They're amazing. Yeah. A lot of respect for those guys. Uh, my favorite quartet's probably Budapest. So if you want to go super old school, uh, if you want to hear Brahms, yeah, whew. Uh, so anyway, we'll save that for another episode. But all right, till next time. Thanks for listening to episode three. Please subscribe. And what what else do you do? You like like? Yeah, hit the like. Is there is there, is there something else like follow like follow us? Do we have That's anything right. to follow? <laughs> no. Follow, follow anyway. Uh, <laughs> comments. Yeah, write comments. Yeah. Uh, comments are great. Uh, we love comments. If we don't like them, we'll just not allow them. So, yeah, write them anyway. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Let's make some conversational chamber music. <laughs> let's let's argue like like david mentioned let's have good argument productive <laughs> all right ciao ciao
Uh, now, how do you stop the recording? Okay.